Welcome to Right Spokane Perspective with your host, Tim. And Shannon. It's opinion, fact, information, and your alert system. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. And welcome to Right Spokane Perspective on this Foster Family Friday episode. And we're going to jump into a conversation here with Chris Knowlton with the Source of Spokane. He's going to be in studio with us today after inspiration. Our inspiration today is going to be choosing to follow God. The average person will make 773,618 decisions over a lifetime, claims the Daily Mirror. The British newspaper goes on to assert that we will come to regret 143,262 of them. I have no idea how the paper arrived at these numbers, but it's clear that we face countless decisions throughout our lifetime. The sheer quantity of them might become paralyzing, especially when we consider that all of our choices have consequences, some far more momentous than others. After 40 years wandering in the wilderness, the children of Israel stood at the threshold of their new homeland. Later, after entering the land, Joshua, their leader, issued to them a challenge. Fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness, he said. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped. Joshua told them, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As we begin each new day, possibilities stretch before us, leading to scores of decisions. Taking the time to ask God to guide us will influence the choices we make. By the power of the Spirit, we can choose to follow Him every day. Heavenly Father, sometimes life can feel overwhelming, and so can the many choices that confront us. Please guide our steps and our decision-making so that we can honor you in the choices that we make. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that's an interesting tale. 700,000 plus decisions you make in a lifetime, and you're only going to regret 100,000 of them. I think that's a pretty good average. Not too bad. It could be worse. And, you know, a lot of people have tough choices to make in their life. And one of those choices is family options, family choices. And unfortunately, some families make horrible choices. It leaves children in tough situations. And then it is required that we need foster parents and foster facilities. And I think that Jesus said to bring the children to me. And he also calls on the Christians to care for the orphans and the widows. So in doing so, there are a lot of Christians across the state and the nation that provide foster care for children. And we have one of those individuals in the studio with us today in Chris Knowlton. He is the head of the organization Source of Spokane. Thanks for coming in the studio, Chris. Uh, Thank you for having me, Tim. Appreciate it. So let's just open up with uh, the basic question of who is Chris Knowlton? What have you done with your life? And what did all the things lead up to the point where you're in the studio talking to us about foster care? So Chris Knowlton, day one, and how you end up where you're at here. All right. Well, I think that there are events in life that shape people. And so the events that in my life have shaped me um, to be the person that I am today, to be on the path that I'm on. And if I go back in time, you know, I'm not that young anymore. But when I was a young man, I was a wild young man. And I got myself in lots of trouble. And I experienced uh, the dark side, so to speak, of, of our society. And with that comes consequences when you're caught. And so my upbringing was a little bit challenging and difficult. And through that process, I ended up finding God in my, in my early 20s and uh, gave my life to Jesus and started going um, the opposite direction. But one thing I realized as I started pursuing the Lord was that um, the events of my past that were meant to destroy me 
could be used for good. You know, the story of Joseph in the Bible, when he's talking with his brothers after they come down to Egypt, his brothers had done horrible things to him, and he went on a path of his own, and he said to his brothers, the things that you did that were meant to destroy me, God is used for good. And I firmly believe that for every person, that that our lives can be used as a testimony for Jesus, and that they can be used for the good. And so that's what got me on my on my journey. When I got saved, I had an interesting salvation. It took five years, and what I tell people is I got saved five times. I would get saved, I would do good for a little bit because God bailed me out of something, then I'd fall away, go back into my party lifestyle, get saved again because of a traumatic event. And then the, my events just kept getting more and more dangerous for me where, you know, near life threatening things like, I can't believe I survived that. Uh, many of my friends did very, very long prison sentences. Uh, my er, my friends in my early years. They Situations did. where you may have nearly literally <laughs> dodged a bullet. Um, actually, there was a time I actually got shot at. It hit the bullet lodge in the back of my car right behind my head. And so just stupid stuff. I was just a wild boy. And so what I like to say is that I got saved five times. Now on the last salvation, the one that stuck, um, I had been through some horribly dark stuff and I told the Lord, I said, God, let me do some good for you because I've done a whole lot of bad. And I thought that I would try to earn, you know, the forgiveness that I was seeking because I was just young and naive. And I didn't realize that uh, there's nothing I can do to earn salvation. There's nothing I can do to be um, saved. You know, there's nothing I can do. It's all in God. To And all I do is just say, yes, I receive that sacrifice for my sins, that kind of thing. So anyway, that's what got me on my path. And one of the things I learned is that my background and my criminal lifestyle and the trouble that I had, it made me really, really good at working with punk kids. And so as I, I went to Bible college uh, in my early 20s, and when I graduated from that, I immediately started serving teenagers um, and youth. I did children's ministry. Um, I did a uh, um, junior high pastor for a while. But inside the church, I really wasn't finding my spot. But you could surely, in these youth ministries, you could point out, you're like, that kid over there kind of reminds me of myself. He probably is going to be the one that's going to cause trouble. I should go be next to that kid. Exactly. You know, and so the the kids that grew up in church, you know, the homeschool kids, I did not know how to relate to them. Like when I came in straight off the streets and the young adult group I was in was full of people who were homeschooled, I'm like, I am way out of place here. But well, they I, did things that were wrong too. I mean, there was times where they were supposed to memorize a passage of the Bible <laughs> and they didn't do it until right before it was due. That was their bad day. Yeah. Yeah, and that's okay. You know, it was hard to relate with that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was okay. And really it was like, I didn't know how to talk to them. You know, that was the hardest part for me. Um, but then I started noticing there, there were other other people who were pulled out of a similar lifestyle to me. And that started really, you know, that's those are people who I started connecting with. So as I had started serving in churches, um, I always, just like you said, Tim, I started noticing the kids that were struggling. And I kept serving kids in churches. I started getting involved in like uh, the behavioral programs at school. So like I went to uh, Chief Gary up here in Spokane for a while, uh, working in the behavioral classroom. Then I ended up meeting my wife and I moved to Puyallup, Washington. And she had a job working for an organization called Friends and Servants. And what Friends and Servants did is they served kids with community service hours who were in trouble with the law. Um, and they did like a, a faith-based approach to helping kids make better choices using their community service hours as a captive audience, right? They got to do 30 hours of community service. I got 30 hours to pour into this kid and hopefully they make better choices when they're done. 
So when I got married, my wife's boss, his name was Bill Bowers. Um, he approached me and said, hey, I, uh, I've been watching you and I was wondering if you'd want to come and work for us. And at that time, I had a pretty good job. I was in the union. I was a certified master auto mechanics and so doing pretty good. And I said, yeah, I'll take the job, you know, um, but can you pay if you could pay me three thousand dollars a month? And he said to me, and this is after I just I just chopped my budget way down. I, I cut it in, you know, well over half. And I'm like, okay, I'll take the job. And then he says to me, he goes, yeah, I'd love to do that. Let me talk to the board and make sure they're okay paying you more than I get paid. And I'm like, you don't make three thousand a month, you know? Wow. And that was back in two thousand. And uh, I, I was in for a, a rude awakening. And so he went and checked with the board. And of course, the board told them that they weren't going to pay the brand new guy more than the CEO was making. And so what ended up happening is I just prayed with my wife and we just felt to take it. And uh, our budget was um, reduced drastically. I got a free car given to me. Um, a house opened up that I didn't have to pay rent at. I only had to pay for the property taxes on the house. So all these things started coming into place so I could take this job and to offset the budget change that I would have. And so I took that job working with troubled teens and I absolutely loved it. The thing about a not-for-profit that's trying to raise money is sometimes, you know, not-for-profit, what I like to say is that you make no profit. And yeah, so, right. um, well, so unless it, sometimes it is pretty lucrative depending on, you know, if you can get corporate sponsors, I think probably left-leaning where they get lots of government money, corporate money, and then they buy large mansions, you know, so depending on, on the nonprofit, if you are a community nonprofit where you're just out to help children and you're not contracted with big, huge governmental powers, you're probably not going to make a whole lot of money. If you uh, want to, if any of the audience would like to check something out, check out the CEO salary of the Goodwill. He makes a lot of money. Yeah, well, there's a lot of those organizations that uh, do rake in a lot of money and their mm -hmm. CEOs are making uh, multi-million dollars a year with million-dollar bonuses at the end of the year. But when you're looking at not being heavily contracted with government and just looking to serve in a, in a small area of the community, especially where children are concerned, there's not a lot of money there. Yeah, yeah. Um there isn't not at, not when I was starting out. And so, so what ended up happening is I worked for that organization for like a year and, um, we started having financial problems. Um, we were trying to raise grant money. We had a landscaping business where we te teach a vocational training and we just weren't raising enough money. And so the board decides they just start laying people off one by one. Well, I keep going to work. I didn't care that I wasn't getting paid. And then finally the board's like, you cannot come. And it was like two, a month and a half, two months into me not receiving a paycheck. I just loved working with the kids so much. And I just found like my niche, right, of what I was supposed to be doing. And so um, I ended up getting laid off from that job. And then I was like, now what? Now what am I going to do? And um, so I didn't have a job. I didn't want to go back to working on cars because I was so passionate about serving young people. And so we ended up um, taking a, a junior high position over here um, with the church um, in Spokane. My friend called me, who was the youth pastor, and he said, hey, I have a junior high position. Would you like to come back? I heard you lost your job. So I came back to Spokane. Um, and I went back to Turner Wrenches and uh, working on cars. Um, and I was just a junior high pastor uh, two days a week. And when that happened, um, I was uh, I started you know complaining to my wife, like, I just want to go back to Puyallup. I want to go back and work with those kids. And she, after she's such a strong-willed woman and she's uh, just got like, such a good head on her shoulder. She's like, why don't you go start something here? 
And so I'm like, huh, okay, maybe I'll do that. So I contacted my friend Bill Bowers over in Puyallup and ran Friends and Servants, and he was willing to share all of the information with me to get the program going. So I started that program over here in 2003, but under the umbrella of the YMCA. And I worked for the YMCA from 2003 up to 2011. Um, And there was a lot of changes happening in the Y. I was losing its Christian roots. And I was having to, when I started there, I said, hey, this is the job I want to do. I gave them a business plan, a job description. I said, this is my job. Will you hire me to do this? And they said, yes, we'll hire you to do that. We love the idea. We love the plan. And as time started progressing, they started throwing other things on my plate that I wasn't passionate about. Hey, we need you to supervise the fitness center for two of your shifts this week. Hey, you're going to be in the pool this week. And I'm like, I don't get paid enough to do something that I don't want to do <laughs> because this is what you guys hired me to do. You hired me to work with teenagers. You hired me to work with the at-risk population. Um, I have it going in three facilities. We're busy. I don't want to do that other portion of the job. So you had YMCA, the organization that was contracted mostly, I think, to government and got their own government grants to work with the youth. And then they subcontracted to you to work with the youth. And then they said, eh, we'll just turn you into an employee and you can uh, be a lifeguard once a week, that kind of thing. Close, um, but... I was the only person at my level. I was like a, you know, just a program director. So they have their tiers in the YMCA. But I had the biggest requirement for raising money compared to any of my colleagues that had the same job title. Youth Investment Program is what we ended up naming it. It had the biggest responsibility to raise money. So I had, I started a, a two businesses. We had a greenhouse, well, three actually. We had a greenhouse that we ran selling flowers. We had a uh, garden and then we had a lawn mowing business. And so we did all that to raise revenue. And then I had to raise, uh, get donations too. So in 2011, what the YMCA was just going a different direction than me. And I decided that I needed to quit and start something else with the desire to reach the population group of kids that are incarcerated or um, in trouble with the law and they're tied to foster care. One of the things I noticed, because I would teach uh, classes to uh, system-involved youth that are locked up at juvenile detention here in Spokane. And there's a big overlap between kids sitting behind bars and kids in foster care. Well, and I think that overlap is is something that we refuse to talk about in this country, having to do with fatherless homes, crime and Included children, I would say. I don't know how we're supposed to uh, categorize them now because we can't call anyone convicts. But we have uh, a problem in the family, and it's a societal problem. It's something that we have to address, I think, as Christians in the church, but also as a a wider community. And our government needs to recognize that need or it's going to get worse. We're going to take a break. We're going to be right back with Chris Knowlton. Again, source of Spokane. Don't go anywhere. I'm dreaming of a wise Christmas. You know, whether we have a lot of snow or not, Right Spokane Perspective wants to wish you and yours a Merry Christmas with these words that Shannon has for you. Who can add to Christmas? The perfect motive is that God so loved the world. The perfect gift is that he gave his only son. The only requirement is to believe in him. The reward of faith is that you shall have everlasting life. The perfect quote from Corey Ten Boom. Thanks again from Right Spokane Perspective, and thank you, listeners, who have supported us to keep us on the air by going to rightspokaneperspective.com and donating or by sending those donations to Right Spokane Perspective, LLC, P.O. Box 76209907. Have a Merry Christmas.
And welcome back to Right Spokane Perspective on this Foster Family Friday episode. There are a lot of parents out there that are fostering children. There's organizations out there that are taking in children who otherwise would be in facilities that the state has to create out of nothing because more and more we have more children who are not still in a home with their birth parents, either because of drug abuse, criminal behavior, um, or, you know, health issues. But most of the time it is criminal behavior. Uh, looking at the, the news and the press of parents that have children that are involved in drugs and drug abuse and uh, severe domestic violence, it leaves these children uh, with, with a really hard road to hoe, a hard future ahead of them with uh, lots of trauma and life experiences that uh, would lead them down the wrong path without direction. We have someone in the studio again today, uh, Chris Knowlton, who is trying to help give some of these children direction. That was something that he was passionate about. And we went off into the break talking about you leaving the YMCA and moving into a different direction. Yeah, in 2011, I started The Source really to address the need of kids that are incarcerated and kids in the foster care system. Um, three years prior to that, my wife and I had become licensed foster parents and we had adopted two little girls out of foster care um, in 2010 and my heart and my wife's heart really just uh, wanted to rescue those who don't have families they don't have parents they don't have parents that care so I launched the source in 2011 and started talking with the state of Washington I'm like how do I get access to the really high needs kids and there is a program in Washington state called BRS which stands for behavior rehabilitative services and it's where the most difficult foster care kids go the ones that have lots of trauma in their back Background, um, and they're just really too difficult for a family placement. And they said to me, hey, if you want to help us, we need help in BRS. And I said, okay. So I spent a year writing policy because you have to go through a contract uh, to get a contract with the state of Washington to be able to take these kids. So I had to write policies, um, got all, all of our policies and procedures written and uh, applied to be accepted as a BRS provider. They said yes. And so in, in 2011, I started the source and I didn't start writing the policy until 2013. We opened our first home in 2015 and we took our first uh, high needs kids. All the kids that come to us, they have had multiple placements. Sometimes I, the highest I've seen is like 30, 30 placements um, that have failed before the kid came to us. Typically it's like five or six is the average where they were placed with the family due to the behavior of the child or whatever circumstances, the child did not last in the home and had to be removed. And then by the time they're at five, they end up in the, the level of care that the source provides. And so since that time, we we now have um, five homes in the Spokane area, uh, one in, one's in Stevens County and the other are down here. So this is like a foster facility of last resort. These are children that have uh, run away from other foster care. Maybe there was violence that was involved, bullying or being victims of bullying because of their vulnerabilities. So this is a foster care of last resort is what it sounds like to me. Yes, the kids will be chemically dependent, extremely assaultive at times, high trauma in their own personal background, heavily medicated at times. They are a challenge and they're not really suitable for your typical family. Oh, they're just very, very difficult. Well, that's something that's very difficult to navigate as well because of uh, you got the state regulations. Of course, you want children protected, but in protecting children's uh, rights, you also have a facility that's looking at how do we protect the other children and the, the, the people that work in the facility when you have children that are this high in need, whether it's violence because of past trauma or maybe the, the chemical addiction and the things that uh, 
you know, cause them to become violent. Yeah. A lot of times the kids um, at that level, um, they're just defiant. You know, teenagers are the smartest people on the planet. Just ask them. Um, they're very, very intelligent. And um, when I was a kid, I, I was one of them, super, super smart. And by the time I was 25, I realized I was an idiot. A lot well, of the- that's the thing, especially teen- even teenagers that aren't troubled. And I know a lot of parents out there that have raised teenagers. I'm kind of through that uh, phase now. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're talking to a 17 year old, you just recognize, yeah, I know that you know everything, but when you need to know something else, call me when you're 30, right? Yes, That's- exactly. Yeah. And so the kids are, you know, I'll just tell you this, like I've been working with youth, uh, since I, well, let's see, 26 years now, 27 years, uh, working with teenagers. And I never, ever got a physical confrontation with a child until I opened up group homes. And I have had tons of them, like probably 80, um, uh, 80 and, and times. That's tough mm-hmm. because you have to basically self-report, is what they would call that. The state would consider that self-reporting that there was an incident, even though you were you got to block a few blows before you can do anything. There's all sorts of policy around it because you know if you touch a child, you have to show that there was a reason why you had to uh, restrict their physical function. It was because mm-hmm. they were hitting people, right? Yeah, and so I became I, I quickly became a uh, a certified instructor in behavior and de-escalation, in behavior management de-escalation, and um, because there is a huge need for that. And so when a when a youth that's seventeen years old, two hundred and fifteen pounds, is attacking you, um, it's not a fight. We are just trying to keep them safe, safe from hurting themselves, safe from hurting us, and safe from them hurting the environment or destroying the house or whatever it may be. So the kids are just they're challenging. But there's one of the things I tell my staff all the time is there's I said you need to look for the chink in the arm. They are masking um, all of their hurt and all of their pain with this behavior that you're seeing. And you're like, man, I don't like that kid. They're so mean. I'm like, but look for that chink in the armor because there's a soft spot in there because this cl- this child does not know what it's like to be loved. They've been fighting for survival since they were basically born. And I have seen some of the most horrible backgrounds from children that, that have been raised by monsters, basically, until the state came in and was able to pull them out. And then their life has been very, very difficult. But... You know, I, we had this one case one time where there's a child was like um, been everywhere. And they're like, I don't know what the source is going to do for them um, because they've had all this therapy. They've had all these services. They've been clipped. They've been to all these mental health um, places. And they're like, well, what are you guys going to do? And I just was sitting there and I said, have you guys tried love? Have you tried love? And they're just looking at me like, what? And that's what we tried. And we've had that child for a year and a half. And that child is stable. Uh, very stable, most stable they've been in their in the last, you know, five years. And so, well, those children coming from a background where they had, I mean, we talk about issues with with children. You know, the uh, the unbonded child. Well, a lot of these children are not just unbonded uh, from from their mom or unbonded from their parents. They're abused, physically abused, behind in school, have issues with literary uh, things, all sorts of different problems because of that lack of love, the lack of the parent-child relationship in it that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very hard for them. Um, there's They have the deck stacked, stacked against them. You know, one thing that you'll you'll see is that, uh, um, well, we don't really see it a lot because it's kind of hidden, but kids at this level, they're the throwaway child. They disappear often in foster care. And, you know, so the, if, they, if they blow out of my place or they go on the run, um, people don't look for them. You know, and so they they just become victims. victims. They become part of that homeless population that we see that's Absolutely. heavily involved in drug abuse, and, and of course all the theft and the problems that the retailers are having. It's an ignored issue, but it's not ignored because we see the decline of these human beings 
and the communities that they are in, whether it's the retail stores or the, the encampments, the people that are drugged out and maybe they left foster care 10, 15 years ago. And that's this 30 year old that's hunched over on fentanyl that you see on your way to work could have been saved in a foster care situation, but didn't receive the love or the redirection. So our, your mission is taking children statistically, it just, Maybe the state doesn't recognize it this way. If you say the throwaway child, the state looks at these children statistically as having no future. I would say that the state does not see them as throwaway children. I say that's the end result. Um, they go through foster care. If they're not adopted, they don't have permanency. If you were to go on the streets of any major city and just say, hey, tell me your background, you will find child after child, well, adult after adult that was a child that was part of the foster care system that never got adopted, that never found stability, that never found people to love them. And they ended up there. Um, you know, and I even, I know a lot of the stats in Washington state and it's very, very difficult. There's a lot of good people doing the work. There's a lot of good social workers trying really hard, um, but the system is definitely broken and we need good people to step up to do something about it. You know, we, we just, there's, there's just a massive need. Um, and I would call on the churches to, to rise up and to say, you know, one of the things that's a very big challenge is um, I would call it American Christianity. There's Now, I am totally a constitutional person. I believe in life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I think those things are good. Um, but in American Christianity, sometimes we think God's going to bless me and everything is going to be good and I'm not going to have any difficulty and I run away from that. Um, sometimes I believe that God calls us to do difficult things because if good people don't step up, there's a saying that, um, that all it takes for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. And I see a lot of evil happening to children. And That's one of my, fam my favorite famous quotes is the only thing required for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And that's where Edmund Burke, I think it was. It's a good quote. It's a really good quote. And um, that's why I say it, because if we don't do something as a society, if we don't do something as followers of Jesus um, and people who love America, our nation and our culture suffer from it. And so I would encourage people to get involved. You know, there's lots of laws that are being passed that are counter um, to a uh, conservative way of living. They're, they're more control on the government side, less freedom on the individual side, um, which we need to be. But if we just allow those to happen more and more and more, eventually it's going to be really hard to right the ship. Um, and so we have to be active now in investing in those things. And I think we have to recognize how the ship is sailing or sinking in the wrong direction how it got there obviously uh as the beginning of the show i recognized that god said bring the children unto me we're supposed to care for the orphans and the widows and i see as like you bring up the american church used to be the place where education happened we didn't have public schools you had the american church whether it was catholic or protestant and you didn't have major you know, welfare programs that funded drug addiction and broken homes. You had the American church. And now we're looking at the situation where now you have children that have nowhere to go. The American church needs to step in. And what's interesting, these laws that you're talking about, some of them are very procedural on how children can or cannot be raised. But we have to go back and tell the state as a community, a Christian community, and say, look, you need to allow the church to be re-engaged in helping in the community because they've kind of locked the church out regulatorily, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think that these bad things that are happening more and more to children is because the state has taken out the American church and the American church has just sat there and taken it, really. Well, if you really look at it, there's a lot of areas like the social welfare division. That should have been the church from the very beginning. 
Um, that should be something that the churches take, took care of from the very beginning, um, taking care of people on all levels. But for our comfort, we turned it over to state agencies. You know, basically, if you go back to uh, FDR, when all that started really happening, it was all good programs. Yeah, it sounds great. The Great Society, is yeah. that what it, yeah, that hasn't turned out so great for the children? No, because the there's nowhere that a state should be in a position to raise a child. That's supposed to be done by fathers and mothers. That's where a child needs to grow up with a family, with brothers and sisters, you know, and not in a in a, in a facility, not in bouncing from place to place, um, and not finding permanency, not finding people who care for them in the long term, um, that they can go to at Thanksgiving, that they can go to at Christmas time. I have a group of young boys that are, you know, they're young men now. They all call me pops or dad, you know, and they called me up just a little bit ago, like, what are we doing for Thanksgiving? What are we doing during Christmas? You know, one of them was like, my birthday, you need to buy me some shoes. And I'm like, bro, you're 23, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so you have a job now. <laughs> so, but that's great. I mean, if you have children that are leaving your care, your facility, the source of Spokane, and they are finding employment, I mean, it's fine. They're going to ask for shoes for Christmas, you know, that's yeah, no one worries. of my favorite things. But, <laughs> but if they find employment, it, and that's one of the things when children age out of foster care, is the church there, mm. right? Is there employers? Because one of the ways the church can be there is like the landscaping company that you talked about, Teresa, they, they have employers that work in the church that should employ these foster kids and kind of take up that uh, mantle where the foster system leaves them, uh, uh, you know, basically out to, f- to flounder as adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, um, what I really want to see is just more uh, people in the in the church body stepping up to do some of the hard things. You know, um, consider taking a child out of foster in foster care. You know, we always had the attention to adopt, and I will tell you, it's not always easy. There's a lot of challenges, you know, um, in the adoption process because your your child may have a lot of wounds. And um, but it's totally worth it. I have three adopted, three bio. We're a family of six, and I all my kids are still home um, from and their oldest is 20, all the way down to nine years old. But and they're all at home still. But it is it's been amazing. Well, we should probably have an interview on how you keep all that together. But we also need to have you back in for an interview because you talked about statistics in Washington State, and I think statistics can can lie, but they can also be a reference on how we should react as Christians seeking knowledge, truth, and uh, the service of our great Lord Jesus Christ in serving the children and families. It is the the Christmas season, and the Christmas season isn't for Christmas trees, Santa Claus, and uh, snowmen. It is for understanding our purpose in Christ. And for all of those listeners out there, don't forget, church isn't the building. We are the church. Get off the couch, find a kiddo, bring them home for Christmas. All that being said, we're going to be with you folks again on Monday. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Right Spokane Perspective. We are sponsored by Right Spokane Perspective, LLC, and made possible by advertisers you hear and contributions from listeners like you.